Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders and operators that are changing the world. In this episode, the founder of Carded Holly Kaju shares the insightful lessons from bootstrapping businesses for 10 years to taking on Amazon and building universal commerce. Our vision is to build the world's largest product database that's searchable and shoppable and personalized so we can help shoppers find the exact product they want however they like to shop, wherever they are on the internet. But what we realized was our starting point in terms of solving a shopper problem and getting that data and information and understanding what product they want is where we needed to focus our attention on. This episode is packed with stories and lessons from Holly's first startup teaching when she was 10 years old to lessons on launching MVPs, building traction, pivoting the initial carded product uh, three months ago and uh, entirely changing the go-to-market but staying true to the carded vision. There is a world in which commerce exists on all digital surfaces in different places. So how do you empower people to do that? So for us, it's once we build out that searchable, shoppable database, whether you go to carded.com and that's the place where you go to find your product, just as you would go to existing big stores, i.e. Amazon or Google Shopping, like how do we disrupt that? We talk about the paradox of loving hard problems, raising $10 million, having never raised a round of venture before that. Uh, and honestly, so much more. It's uh, a remarkably insightful episode and I really do hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, I mean, you know. Thank you for finally joining me on Wild Hearts. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. At 10 years old, you learned a valuable lesson lesson on packaging products. Mm-hmm. What was it? Tell us a story. Yeah, wow. Um, it's probably one of my first jobs. Non-legal job, you know, before you're nine, 14 <laughs> and nine months. Um, but we had these family friends and they had a packaging uh, sponge company. Yeah. And they obviously hadn't scaled yet, so they didn't have the machinery to or the, you know, systems autonomously to package the products. And so they wanted to pay us, their kids and the other family friends' kids, $5 an hour in the holidays to package, put these sponges in a packet. (laughs) And I remember seeing one sponge that was blue and one that was yellow, and then one said bathroom and one said kitchen. And and I said to one of the older kids of the son, and I was like, what's the difference? Like, what, you know, this packaging says, like, this makes your kitchen sparkly and clean and this one does this to your bathroom because oh nothing they're just different colors and i realized <laughs> at a very young age that i was being fooled completely yeah and what packaging really meant i mean it was part genius but i thought like wow that's wild that you can just sell the same thing slightly different color and put it in a different packet it's a pretty remarkable lesson the fact that you also remember oh, like this so is a takeaway clear. just like ui design yeah it was so clear in my sketched in my memory. <laughs> Were you one of those kids who was just like, I, I need to make money? Um, yeah, I think so. For me, money was the ability to do what you wanted. Mm. You didn't have to ask your parents for permission yeah. to buy something at the shop because you made your money. You could go do what you wanted. Well, what about a phone? Did they, if you had enough, if you'd saved enough? Mm. Like, did you ever run into any challenges when it came to buying certain products? Like, I wasn't allowed a phone until high school. Yeah. Um, so, I remember my first phone, Nokia 3210. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got that for my 12th birthday. Yeah. But I wanted the Nokia, was it 80. 310 or 8210? I with wish the... I could tell you. Oh, sorry. I'm a little bit older. No, okay. no. I, I had a Nokia too. Um, but all I really remember about it is Snake. Yes, Snake. I do remember Snake. But do you remember the first phone that came out with the white light? Yes. It was an 8310. I really wanted that. My real first job was McDonald's at 14 and nine months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. I think fantastic. Tell me more about that. McDonald's? Yeah. Yeah. Because when I was growing up, I heard like it was actually a a genuinely good training ground. It was fantastic. I don't know about now because everything's automated. (laughs) I've heard it's similar, but we we were told we had to take an order. 
yeah. and package and give the order back within 60 seconds and you had a countdown on your clock on on, on your um, screen so it was actually well, really good training. Now. well no it's I think you <laughs> I think you still have to pack the order if you're back of kitchen yeah and deliver it but it's they don't no longer take orders but I think it was really good training to see like processes and systems mm. um, so yeah how long did you do that for oh maybe under under a year, okay. I used to do it after school. Put my McDonald's. This is so gross. Put my McDonald's <laughs> uniform in the bottom of my school bag, <laughs> and catch the train and go to McDonald's. Did you end up picking out? Like I would have completely, I, I would have had deep problems. Um, I mean, you get a bit bored of it after a while. I did definitely. You could have like McDonald's for like a dollar, like yeah. for your lunch or dinner. God. You know, on the weekends it was lunch or like after school, you know, yeah. you could have your $1 meal basically. Yeah. Um, I worked at the, the Firehouse Hotel, which is like a business pub in North Sydney. Uh-huh. And uh, I would have been like 18 and I just, I couldn't help myself but eat a schnitty for oh, yes. lunch and dinner, lunch and so dinner, good. lunch and dinner. It was not so good. good. <laughs> anyway, I wanted, so I was reading your, you've got some awesome blogs and I want to read one uh, paragraph from it because it stood out. So it's titled uh, Building a Startup is Like Building a Fire. It's profound. Mm. Um, in the blog you wrote, these days have been some of the hardest that I've ever experienced. Sometimes everything's terrible and I can't imagine it getting better. But then there is another self. It is smiling and laughing from above as it can't believe how much I'm learning day to day. Something no MBA could ever teach you. And it stood out to me as like, the paradox of this is remarkably hard but also remarkably fulfilling and enriching can you share like more about when that was in your life yeah so i remember this blog was written in about 2016 and at that time i had spent two years on off in san francisco so in 2014 i went to san francisco by myself and I was building my first company, Pixie, and it was really hard because at the time, San Francisco or people in the Bay Area were all in the Bay Area. You didn't really build a tech company outside of the Bay Area. Um, you were, you would have a technical co-founder. You would st- hire everybody in the Bay Area. You wouldn't have any remote employees. And I remember getting there and I didn't have a technical co-founder I didn't have a team in the Bay Area I had a fully remote team that I had built for the last two years and so for me it was like it was really really hard having you know you go through all the startup lessons um, but it was hard in the things that that we had to do for the business and things would break and things wouldn't work and customers would not be happy but then at the other other side of it some customers were really happy or would build a product and it was growing really fast but I I built a product and it was free so I didn't really understand well yeah it's growing really fast but it's free so that's not good because you're not making money <laughs> and so I think for me I have this weird thing where I actually really enjoy when something's hard, Mm. I get really bored when things are easy. Mm. And I know that's not necessarily healthy, but I think it's just my natural state. That feels like almost like like somehow seeing the glass half full when something is really hard. Yeah, I guess so. Like it it means you're almost a magnet for hard things. Yeah, I enjoy the hard things. Like uh, there's times where I'll like, all the time, but maybe definitely during this time, where I'll literally cry and be like, but I love this. <laughs> like, something wrong with that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, they sound like tears of joys, though. Maybe, or you're just like, this is so screwed up, but so fun. It's like a roller coaster, right? Yeah. You, like, love and hate it at the yeah. same time or jumping out of an airplane skydiving <laughs> like you get you to the not. bottom and you're like this is amazing let's go again <laughs> well maybe i've maybe i've chosen the easy path in life because you will never see me skydive <laughs> you should do things that scare you yes i did it once because it was the thing i was scared about the most and and you, you realize you can do anything after you do the thing that's the scariest thing i love that yeah 
It was during the pandemic. Oh. Yeah. I was like, what's the thing that scares me the most? <laughs> that was I it. really need to get out of my house. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. Um, tell me a bit more about Pixie. Yeah, where do I start? Um, I guess f- a little bit of background. You know, I over 10 years ago was building e-commerce stores for merchants and I was actually living in regional New South Wales and I was building um, e-commerce stores and realized that so many of the merchants had the same problems and that was really how do you get beautiful product images, how do you get product content on a site to convert and help a shopper make a purchasing decision. They Mm. can't go in store and touch the product. So then I started Pixie and that was really editing product images at scale for merchants. I soon realized instead of just doing it for one merchant, I could build Shopify apps. And this was back in the day when there was less than 200 apps in the Shopify app store. And for context, there's now 6,000 plus apps in the Shopify app store. So we got in really early and I realized there were more problems that I could solve for merchants and automate it in the app store so they didn't have to do the work. And I always had a passion and still do is like automation and efficiencies in anything we do. Mm. Like technology is incredible and we should be able to empower people to do to their job. Either allow them to focus on the things they love or allow them to like spend time on the actual money-making activities, like build their product or support their customers versus editing product images, cutting out white background, cutting out the background, putting them on white surfaces and then uploading them. So yeah, today I have bootstrapped multiple Shopify apps. Um, It runs in the background and it's, yeah, I really, really love it. Like what we've done for merchants on Shopify. It's been a great ecosystem. Well, I was going to ask what was some of the lessons from uh, amassing like, I don't know, 40,000 merchants um, through building a lot of these applications for them. But you've given one, which is uh, the value of um, efficiency and learning about your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are some others? It's a good question. I think it's really with the merchants in particular, the Shopify app, Uh, sorry, the Shopify merchants, they don't necessarily know what they want. They don't know what is possible. They really need to, they have a problem and you nearly need to preempt it and act a bit like an agency or a consultant. Well, that's what I was doing with Pixie. It's like looking at their website. Okay. Everybody wants more sales. How do they get more sales? Well, there's like a whole varied range of things from marketing activities to like improving sites, site speed, how your products look to reduce returns. So can you give people more information? So I guess some of the lessons was really sort of building the product that they don't know that they need. Mm. Um, A lot of time I spent in forums or Facebook groups to listen to what people wanted or, you know, even they would say, hey, I've built a store. Can you give me feedback on the store? So it was always, for me, a lot of the Shopify agencies are there to help a store say, like, these are the things wrong with your business. Now we're going to implement these changes. I wanted to do that with apps. It was like, here's the things you need to fix. We've we've monitored your store, but how do you do that in an automated way? And then how do you not just say, here's the things you need to go do. Now go hire the people because people don't know who to hire. They might not have the resources. So how can you give them the button, literally a button to press to say, yes, fix it. And that's all they need to do. So for me, it was always looking at the problems that their merchants had, but not necessarily what they were asking for, but more so finding a solution to their problem. What have you learned about MVPs? Oh, lots. I think, I mean, Paul Graham famously says, do things that don't scale. Mm. We've all heard that. Mm. And it's so true. I can remember so clearly when I started Pixie, I was sitting, do you remember Blue Chili? Yes. Yes. I was sitting in their office in Surrey Hills and I put up a landing page. I built it myself on WordPress and I didn't know how to code the paper. God, that API takes a long time to learn, though, when you're not ten- non-technical. Especially ten years ago, <laughs> yeah. or more than ten years ago. Yeah. Um, 
And I was I, doing the same 10 years you ago. You're doing that? Oh, I was get so yeah. much head noise at the time. <laughs> now there's now, easier yeah, yeah, tools exactly. to use. <laughs> um, and I put up a landing page and it literally said, putting your link to your Dropbox files. And I counted the images. I sent a PayPal invoice and I would find a designer online. They would edit the images and I would send them guaranteed sent back one dollar one image twenty four hours. That's awesome. I would send them back uh, within twenty four hours in an email saying here's your edited photos and I would have a virtual assistant manage the spreadsheet and the designer. Huh. Mm-hmm. Virtual assistant's pretty ahead of the game though. Yeah. It's upwork. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay. All sorts of people. And so what what was so do things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. Um but what was the value of going through that exercise? I think I haven't really spoken about it, but when I was 19, I built a travel website. Yeah. I took a lot of money to an agency in Surrey Hills to build me a travel website. <laughs> After did. that, I spent a lot of money online getting outsourced developers to build an e-card website. I had spent so much money building different things. I was like, I don't, I can't spend money yeah. to do these things anymore. I just have to do it myself. And... There's only like, yeah, I just had to make some sort of money or have some sort of traction to justify hiring another person or hiring a developer to even build a PayPal button. Mm. There was something about, (laughs) the reason why I laugh so much, I did the exact same thing. And I showed them the designs and he looked at me with pretty much disgrace (laughs) because they were so bad. He's like, yeah, this is going to cost you like... 300k um i was like wow i'm just gonna have to learn how to code yeah exactly (laughs) he's like i'm out um i'm kind of glad for your sake that he was out (laughs) what what you just shared too is like a really interesting like bootstrapping lesson Mm. on like oh i need to prove to myself that this actually makes sense to go and pursue at what point did you start knowing that actually this was adding value i think when so it was easier back in those days you could just email a store and they didn't get so many emails so they would respond and I literally just had a well actually early early days which they don't have anymore Shopify had a marketplace and so I'd get a virtual assistant to trawl through the marketplace look for all the merchants and put them in a spreadsheet and then we'd email all of them and so when you have repeat customers coming back um, and people ordering more image images to be edited you realize there's something there Mm. um and i just kept adding people to solve the problem not adding the technology to solve the problem Mm. i love that and so you were bootstrapped uh as you said for 10 years um what other lessons did you take away from uh the bootstrapping life it forces you to be constrained like to constrain what's important and what's next. Um, I think the other thing is it does make things harder because there's times, like I said, we launched one of our other apps in the Shopify app store and we were getting hundreds and hundreds of merchants sign on a day and it was free. All it did was resize your product, your images, just Mm. resizing. And that made it hard because maybe at that time I should have gone and raised money and shown that like I'd built a product that's completely automated, doesn't require one human to step in and it's growing like wildfire. We're doing millions of photos a month. Wow. But it was free. Mm. And so you kind of like, well, you can't fund anything or people with free. So I think that was an interesting experience because you don't feel you have true product market fit because you don't have a business. Um, I think bootstrapping also helped us to look at like really solving a problem versus a nice to have. Yeah. And we would, we would get very, we would be scrappy with who we hired and I would hire, you know, one person for one day. So a marketing person for one day a week or 10 hours a week and then scale as the business scaled we would add another person on or extend their hours. So it makes you really resourceful. Um, yeah, it has some good, really good qualities. So how did you go from WordPress to fully automated? Did you find a, a technical co-founder or was that journey like? So I didn't find a technical co-founder for Pixie. I think I had spent a lot of time and energy trying to find a technical co-founder. 
I moved to San Francisco, as I mentioned, and I did 500 startups. They allowed me to do 500 startups without a technical co-founder. But the, everybody else, you know, I got into tens of thousands of dollars in revenue at that point. So they were like, well, you don't need a technical co-founder. You've shown that you have traction and you don't have a technical co-founder, which I think was really helpful because then it like removed that blocker of feeling like I always needed someone else versus you can actually hire really good technical people. They don't mm. need to be a co-founder. Mm. Um, so I think for me, it was, I just decided I need to f- hire the best people for the company and the team versus find this person who might not be right. Mm. It's a big job to have someone as a technical co-founder or any type of founder with you who you don't really know. How did you arrive at that? Like I imagine like you're going through the co-founder search experience, meeting people on on mass. Uh, like that's a hard lesson uh, and quite a wise lesson to arrive at. Can you share a bit more about the journey of um, or the process that you went through? Yes. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> scars <I'm trying> to... <laughs> <laughs> where they built a bunch of code and then it was like a disaster and like they said it would take 12 months and it took like two years I don't <laughs> I mean all the engineers are going to hate me for saying this but whether it's software whether it's like I don't know mechanical electrical engineering everything takes longer than yeah. one expects even on the business side everything oh, yeah. takes longer oh, yeah. than anyone expects yeah. ever but I think for me that it's really, you know, unless you find someone who's really like willing to give their whole life to something, like really give their whole life to something, <laughs> <laughs> then it's probably like not the right person. Yeah. And it's, there's not that many people who do the crazy things that we do. So, and I don't blame them. Yeah. How did you find initial traction? On On Pixie, Pixie but even more generally like um you've launched a whole series of apps how did you like what did you learn about building that initial customer base after the mvp yeah uh, we really leveraged early channels that probably are harder to leverage today yeah um you know a lot of content creation you know we partnered with shopify to to create their product photography guide for all merchants was you know 100 pages it goes out to all of their merchant base and like really be the face of shopify partner i am actually their retargeting ads which are still going four years on so if i follow you around the internet (laughs) it's not my fault um so we did a lot of content And I think it was really being where the business is, but all like the business as in our customer, the merchant, but it was just helping them. Mm. So many of them are craving, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, craving resources for like, how do I build an online store? How do I improve my online business? Um, So it was really, I think Shopify has built an incredible ecosystem where it's really focuses on the merchants, the agencies who help the merchants build their store and the app developers and the app developers are really there to fill gaps that Shopify hasn't necessarily built for and they they're building for the 80% they're not building mm. for the the other people so there's always nuance in certain businesses or bigger enterprise businesses that Shopify doesn't necessarily build for but I think it's been a really good ecosystem it's like a triangle and you need all three sides of a triangle for it to be a triangle and for it to like stand up so I think that's where they've been really successful and it's really helped like everyone in the Shopify ecosystem is an entrepreneur the store owner is an entrepreneur. The agency is an entrepreneur. It's someone who runs and has built an agency and the app developers are entrepreneurs. So I think it was like, how do you partner with an ecosystem to gain traction? And we realized that being early on in the Shopify ecosystem, and we did try it with other ecosystems, you know, Magento, et cetera. They just weren't as strong as Shopify. And then just, you know, riding off the back of Shopify's growth. And I would still say today, if you're B2B SaaS, like 
being part of an ecosystem, whether it's the zero ecosystem or the Atlassian ecosystem, um, I think it's really, really, it can be really beneficial. And early on, people said you couldn't, Pixie is not a billion dollar unicorn company, and I understand that. But there are ones out there who we were all told you can't build a billion dollar company being a Shopify app. Clavio just went public a few weeks ago. I need to get the number, so don't quote me. But for billions of dollars. Yeah. And they started because they focused on email for e-commerce. It's a remarkable story and actually quite a really powerful lesson on like identifying where those market forces are and those players are and wedging yourself in there. Yeah. Uh, tell us about VOP. How did you arrive at VOP? And I guess it was like uh, almost point zero one uh, of the Carter journey. Yes. Um, so share us yeah, what the idea was and uh, what that experience was like. Yeah, I still really believe in VOP. Um so during the pandemic, yeah. don't know if you know Mason, don't know if you're cool enough, but TikTok <laughs> was a <not>. thing. <laughs> okay, everyone knew about TikTok at that point. So, Or do you use TikTok? I, no, I, I couldn't use it because I would be lost for days. Okay. Okay. Uh, so oh, I've, okay, I've been okay. very intentional about like, do not download it. Okay. Uh, oh, I love TikTok. It's fantastic. So TikTok was taking off because we were all sitting at home. And a lot of the Shopify stores already had Instagram feeds on their site. But if you went into TikTok, and even t- still today, you go into TikTok, everyone on the video says, like, where's that? Where are those sneakers from? Where's that handbag from? Where's that dress from? Where's that, you know, any item from? And it will be full in the comments. And so these social media managers on these brands need to spend their time redirecting people. You can't add a link to those to the comments. You can literally just tell people what the product is. Mm. So we built an app that would allow brands and also influencers to pull their TikTok content onto their website and basically tag all of their content um, with the products that they had in their catalog. So brands would pull it in and get, create like a, a TikTok shop. It was actually called Talk Shop. Mm. I own the domain Talk Shop. And then we moved to VOP for trademark reasons. <laughs> Uh, which is video shopping, <laughs> so kind of close. Yeah, and uh, and then. So, am I imagining a feed, like an embedded feed, in the in the website? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So you could either have a sort of a carousel feed on your homepage, which is very popular, or a full page of all the product, uh, all the videos with the products. Yeah. And we then had influencers reach out to us and say, like, I want to use it because I've got affiliate links. I can put you know, links to the products of the items that I'm wearing. Then I realized, well, hang on. You have all these product links, affiliate links. They link out and they're either out of stock. They go to a dead end, a 404 page, so the item doesn't exist anymore. Or you link out and it's not in your size. It doesn't ship to your country. All of these problems. So I really wanted to build a multi-merchant checkout. You could stay on the video. You could add a product from Merchant A and Merchant B. So take like your Nike and your Bloomingdale's in America. I was living in San Francisco at the time. And you could add those items to your cart and you could check out and you didn't have to go anywhere. Mm. And so that's what VOP was. And then when I was building the multi-merchant checkout, I realized that we weren't the only ones who needed this sort of technology. There were so many people on the web trying to build different apps, not our app, but like whether that was checkout in gaming or some other sort of social commerce um, app. And so I really wanted to build the functionality for others, like developers, to be able to build new commerce experiences that didn't exist. Mm. And so... I'm just thinking, so when did you start Bob and then when did you start Carded? I'm just trying to capture the, the time period here. Yeah, so VOP really was around February 2020, literally when we're going into lockdown Yeah. in the pandemic. What a wild time. What I a think. fun time to be on TikTok, though, for you. Like, that is, talk about, like, oh, taking yes. your own lesson on going where the market forces are. Yes, uh, and being a part of an ecosystem. It was great. It's like reapplication 101. Yeah. It was fantastic. Like, it was it was really fun. 
still love TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> like how, how often are you on TikTok? I don't really publish, but one of my videos got a million views. I don't views. share that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really should get back on. I'm just not very funny. And also... I've been laughing. <laughs> because you're paid to laugh, Mason. <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, I probably am incentivized. <laughs> so, Universal uh, Commerce, what mm. is that about? I mean, you've shared, like, the 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 early seeds of what Carded would become, but um, what do I mean by universal commerce? What do you mean or what do I mean? What do you mean? Well, what? yeah, <laughs> I mean, I said it, but you really actually originated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at Carded, we see a world in which, like, commerce should be anywhere. Like, commerce has really, as I've just, like, spoken to you about, it's like we've always built tools for merchants. Mm-hmm. Every tool is built for a merchant in mind, a brand in mind. How can brands make more money um, and optimizing for the brand? But really, when we thought about it, like, we're building for the shopper. We're building for the consumer. And Universal Commerce is allowing that consumer, when they see a product, whether it's on social media, whether it's on TV, on any digital service, whether a friend recommends it, they should be able to purchase it in their size for the, maybe not the price they want, but the ideal price or close enough, it should ship to them. And I think the other thing is that commerce hasn't really changed. Like we've had a retail store, we've gone online, we still go to a website and we still browse and it's still pretty basic. And then we find a product, whether we discover it or whether it's on an e-commerce store, we then go, well, hang on, maybe I can get it better. In for a better price. Maybe I can get it faster. Maybe I can get a better returns policy. Maybe I can use a coupon code. So then we open up all these tabs and we go into Google Shopping and we're like, okay, Google Shopping doesn't actually link products. They rely on the merchant to give them the feed. So again, they're for the merchant. And then you are not going to go to Google page five. Mm. You probably go to the first two pages and you realize that the product that you want, you've now just wasted an hour trying to find it, but you know what you want because you've seen it on Instagram or your friends recommended it, but you're trying to find it in your size and for the price. So we believe that if there was a standardization of products and product data and product information and that was surfaced in the right surfaces, like where you see the product originally, then you would be more likely to buy and purchase versus spend a lot of time trying to find the product that you want. Mm. Go a step further and just describe the user journey, maybe through an example um, of, I guess, that checkout flow. Yes. So I think in terms of a user journey, what we realized was, you know, you're looking for going on a skiing holiday and you want a skiing jacket. And first of all, Everybody has a different shopping journey. It's, you know, some people use Pinterest, some people use Instagram, some people go to the exact store that they want to go to, some people read a magazine. But in a user journey in terms of shopping for a jacket, I would say most women, myself included, go to Instagram. We look through our friends or we look through some people that we follow. We find a jacket that we like. And then we know what jacket we want, similar to what I was talking about. And we will open up Google to try and find it. Mm. We've found the image, but we don't actually know what the jacket is. Now you can go read the comments in the comment section of Instagram and people will say, oh, that's the jacket from this store. But is it exactly? Maybe it's sold out. Maybe it's last season. So the user journey is really, I would say, cumbersome in terms of finding the item that you want and that you need and that you're willing to buy. But I think the future is one where there is a checkout inside the place where you found the jacket. I think what's interesting and something that we've really learnt is that the technology isn't there yet for the consumer to make the purchasing decision. And that's because they're not surfaced with all the information. When I say the information, it could be the reviews. It could be the ability to put in a checkout code, uh, a promo code. So, for example, 
um, I would say Instagram shopping, Instagram commerce hasn't really worked because it doesn't have the ability to compare products across multiple merchants. Mm. You're literally just buying from that one merchant. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But what's the advantage of having that? Like, if I love this jacket mm-hmm. and I'm going to f- go on Google search to find it, why wouldn't I just uh, circumvent that process and buy it where I am? Well, we would all love that. Yeah. So what, what's the advantage of having like that, that browsing piece? I guess what I'm asking, in if I'm imagining the checkout flow mm-hmm. in Carded, Mm-hmm. You were just saying how the reason why it hasn't worked with uh, with Instagram is because you don't have that comparison, you don't have the reviews. Um, is am I imagining it correctly to say that that would be encarded, that would be in the checkout flow? So, I guess something to touch on is that when we started this journey, we really believed that on-site checkout in the digital experience, not on a merchant site was the most important thing and being at the end of that purchasing decision. What we realized was we were trying to solve the business problem, the business problem for the platform. So we had a whole lot of interest in media from media companies to have on-site checkout. Currently read a blog or an article and there's affiliate links. So they wanted, we believed, if we put in on-site checkout on the page, then people would check out. We actually realized we need to solve the shopper problem first and we need to get close, we need to start further up the funnel in terms of um, once they've discovered the product, how do we help them save and compare the product versus just the on-site checkout? Because they hadn't been able to make that comparison yet because there is no such thing as a linked offer at checkout. So being able to compare those products. Mm. So that's where we've made some changes. So what was so technically hard? Yeah, I think what's really technically hard is that commerce has always been, building any commerce experience has always been merchant by merchant. Mm. So you've had to go and sign up one merchant and you're not really solving a problem until you have all merchants, but nobody has all merchants. So it's how do you index the whole of the world's products across the internet? Mm. How do you standardize all that data? And then how do you link all of it together to make sense of it? And then how do you make it personalized? Mm. And that goes back to, I guess, my comment around commerce is that it's still so primitive in a way. You go to a, a website, name any big merchant, I go to the same website, we see the same things. So there's still not, there's no one index of all the world's products that allow people to surface them. So therefore, commerce problems in digital experiences haven't been solved, which makes it so technically hard to solve because the only way to do it is to literally get every product on the internet that people care about. Like we can get all the products in the world But if people don't care about them, there's no point. But there is a large portion of all the major retailers where there is not one database of products for us to surface to build a good shopping experience. Mm. What are some war stories in the the engineering team on trying to build and ideating for uh, a product like that? I think some of the learnings is that we tried to build for scale really early. Yeah. Um, we did index all of Shopify's products and a lot of large merchant retailers' products as well. We had over a billion products in our database. Wow. So we had built for that. But like what are the products that customers, shoppers care about? Mm. So we can sit there building our integrations our permissionless integrations all day, every day, but like what does the shopper want? So for us, we had gone and built B2B technology, which we still have, the multi-merchant checkout, being able to turn any link into a checkout. We had carded elements, which is like a low-code, no-code. You could put in a line of code and you could have 
this ability to add multiple products to your checkout. But what we realized was that if we don't build for the shopper, then they're not going to check out. Mm. And so for us, I would say like the biggest lesson was how do you, I guess, get something in the hands of the consumer earlier than just build for the platform. And a lot of the customers that we were going after, I guess this is like part engineering, product engineering is that we were building for media companies and they were not commerce companies and they've all built commerce teams, but they're still so new and early in their commerce journey. So it was our success was directly linked to their success of their commerce experience. Gotcha. And I think that's a good point to talk a bit about Swirl and um, like how you started solving for that customer-orientated mm-hmm. problem versus the merchant. Yep. Talk to me about it. What were uh, what was the intention um, with launching that prob- product? Yeah, so uh, about a few months ago, we realized that we wanted to be closer to the shopper. We wanted to be able to understand what were the products that shoppers cared about from what merchants, because previously we had taken affiliate links, the links that the media companies thought that the consumer wanted and turned them into a shopping experience. Well, we decided we were going to build a shopper app. So we've actually really quickly built and launched a consumer app called Swell. And Swell allows people to save products from any site on the internet or any app and then organize and compare the products. Hmm. So say you're saving for a wedding and you have multiple events or you're moving house and you need items for your house, you typically say, I need a couch and you or sofa and you've gone on to multiple sites, you're not too sure which sofa you want. So you save them to swell. Today, people will open up tabs or windows. They will take screenshots. They will write notes in their notes app or they'll send links to themselves or send links to a partner. And all those products are everywhere. You don't know what the price is, when the prices drop. You don't know if there's like a discount or a sale. And you normally can't find them when you want to go back to them. So Swell allows you to save with a share extension or a link directly to the app. And then it tracks the price over time. So it can tell you if the price is going up and going down Mm. um, when it's on sale. And it gives you those notifications. And I think what was so interesting recently... I was actually naive. I didn't realize that merchants always put their prices up. Not just on sale, they put their prices up. So the app will also notify you when prices are going up and prices Mm. are going down. And so this sounds like a pivot. Is that right or wrong? Um, Share a bit more about the decision to launch that app. Yeah, it's definitely not a pivot on the vision. Our vision is to build the world's largest product database that's searchable and shoppable and personalized so we can help shoppers find the exact product they want however they like to shop wherever they are on the internet but what we realized was our starting point in terms of solving a shopper problem and getting that data and information and understanding what product they want is where we needed to focus our attention on Mm. and build out the contextual commerce side later So we still have all that technology to do the multi-merchant checkout, but we've really focused on what are the products that users are saving. And then we've got a whole database of users and products with high purchase intent versus here's a product you may like, check out now. Mm. It's very much, what do you want? Tell us, let us help you find the product and find it at the best price. And... Is that really just a growth hack strategy to accelerate the time in which you can actually build the carded product? Like, as you were sort of saying before, we didn't know what was popular. So we had heaps of products, a billion or over a billion, uh, but uh, we didn't really know which ones were valuable Mm -hmm. to the shoppers. Um, So I'm curious where Swirl sits in on this journey towards that vision you described. Yeah, that's a great question. Swell is definitely an application of our API. Mm. 
Yeah. So Carded is very much still an API, a product data API, and we're building out a product graph. But what we wanted to be able to show people was the application of the API and how powerful it was. And in order to surface a – think about it like a distributed marketplace across the internet and empower shoppers – to surface those products, we need the API, but you want to be able to surface the right products. So if we're learning early on from consumers, not just early on in terms of learning from product, but like actually collecting that data and information on what they want, then when we surface it into experiences, we're surfacing the right information to the right customer. Mm. Are you using Marco at all? No, but we're good friends. Okay, there you go. We have um, spoken to them. Yeah, I'm just curious how you think about... So uh, Marco um, has built basically this search engine, which is in their tagline is search the way that you think. Um, it's good. It's a good tagline. And I was just curious how you think about um, uh, delivering products and shop and, and um, products that people want mm-hmm. um, as quickly as possible. And maybe like zooming out a level above, like how did you think about traction and building that um, with shoppers at the beginning of, I guess, what was only three months ago? I would say we're very much in the early stages of building out Swirl. Um, We are still, it is in test flight. Yeah. Um, We do have users using it and coming back every week. And that's really important to us and seeing what they save. And we've recently launched a feature that allows you to mark as purchased. So when you purchase an item, let us know that you've purchased it because then mm. we can see the full user lifecycle yep. um, in terms of how do they think, um, what products are they adding, what do they need to know to come back. Um, I mean, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Black Friday, Cyber Monday was just this last weekend. Yeah. And you could see that people were coming back to check their items, mark them off and organize them. Um, I think for us, it's let the user tell us what they want and then we help them solve that problem. Mm, I love that. When are you launching out of test flight? 2024. 2024. Nice and broad. Products take launch, uh, too long to launch. Yeah. Early 2024. (laughs) We want to build the right, like we are open. If you go into the website, anyone can sign up. But it's really about building the features that users want. Okay. And being very intentional about that. Yeah. And uh, I will ask, um, so A, it's obviously very cool to learn about the entire life cycle of that shopper. Like to know that people were organizing this, sort of bookmarking it, and then to come back on Black Friday because that's when the discounts were there is just like a beautiful journey across different merchants that I'm sure like you can start to imagine the ecosystem that like for example Shopify has they would have that sort of Mm -hmm. um, intel I can imagine Uh, what's the next step uh, to the extent you can share after something like Swell or is this now like a foundational feature of how shoppers organize what they want I think there's Carded, it's, you know, we, I do want to be able to provide people with the API to be able to build the experiences that they want to. There is a world in which commerce exists on all digital surfaces in different places. So how do you empower people to do that? So for us, it's once we build out that searchable, shoppable database, whether you go to carded.com and that's the place where you go to find your product, just as you would go to existing big stores i.e. Amazon or Google Shopping, like how do we disrupt that? Like Amazon doesn't have every product on the internet. People aren't happy with Amazon. It definitely doesn't surface the brands that I want or the furniture that I like. And Google Shopping is for the merchant and it's ad-based. So how do we build a better experience for the consumer? And that's what we're really focused on. But it is also about using the API and our application to be able to provide that into other contextual commerce experiences or other applications for the shopper. And Swell's just one. Mm. Can you uh, share what Carded Elements was and uh, I guess the lessons from launching that feature 
um, of the Carded ecosystem. Yeah. So Carded. So when we started Carded, it was very much our product API, which allowed developers to build new commerce experiences. But most people don't actually know how to build a commerce experience, and so they shouldn't. When they're building something completely new that doesn't exist, whether that's commerce in a gaming company or commerce within a messaging app, it's a new thing that doesn't exist. So what we realized was that they they may have had the development resources to build, but it was going to take a long time for them to build on top of our API. So we built Carded Elements, which was a low-code, no-code builder that allowed you to put a piece of JavaScript on your site. Mm. And you didn't need to build the cart and check out. So we could we could streamline the process for the developer, a little bit like Stripe mm. elements. Um, and that allowed implementation to be a lot faster than we initially anticipated. So we did start building, you know, we had a lot of API documentation. You could build whatever you want, but you nearly give people too many options. They don't know what to build. So yes, carded elements was the thing that we launched. And you're saying mm-hmm. that, uh, I guess the focus of a set menu was what it needed. Yes. And it's kind of ironic because I don't know if you've listened to the Shoes of Prey story. I have. But they really talk about how there were too many options. Yeah. It's like that paralysis analysis. Yeah, but I mean, situation. yeah, well, Blackbird was an investor in yes. Shoes of Prey. And um, uh, I also worked at Zip. For a couple of years and mm. I guess one of the most powerful insights is just in e-commerce it's totally about removing re, uh, removing friction yes and that's why carded um, is so beautiful in that way it's because mm. you remove all of the friction yeah um, efficient automate <laughs> hashtag no pixie <laughs> <laughs> hashtag carded <laughs> oh so good uh, what do you think having reflected on that experience, building carded elements, launching Swirl, was there anything you could have done to accelerate your learnings looking back in hindsight? Oh, hindsight's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. How about all the learnings? For the benefit of everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also think that everything takes so much longer than anyone anticipates ever. Yeah. Um, and there's no such thing as an overnight success, you know, like all of my learnings in multiple businesses that I've done. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, I'm a big advocate, as everyone knows, for remote work. And I think this was one of the things that I could have done differently was we had multiple time zones. We had over five time zones because we built the company during the pandemic. And I think that can really slow a early stage team down, Mm. um, having to have people in different time zones and not just you know, a two-hour difference. It's, you know, a full day sort of difference. So I think if I was to do it again, I would start in one time zone or two time zones, not five time zones. Mm. Um, so I think that would have really accelerated um, our journey. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I, you, I think you wrote a blog like, I don't know, 2018, like, pretty much predicting COVID would happen and, and that everyone would like be distributed. Uh, are you now saying that you're for in-office only vibes? No. Where do you stand now, Holly? It's really hard <laughs> because I don't like sitting on the fence and I think both have its pros and cons. Okay. Um, we're currently all remote, but we're uh, split between Sydney and Melbourne. Okay. So it's very much the same time zone. I think it... I think hybrid is good. I think, you know, it's different for different companies and different points in, the, in like, your journey. Right. You know, what works for us now might not work for us in a year's time or two years' time. I think there's a lot to be said about being in the same space, um, you know, the motivation that you get and the energy you get from the other people around you. But then how do you create that online or how do you, you know, we try and meet up every month or quarter we have a quarterly offsite or quarterly get together or we're going down to melbourne next week to have a team lunch like there's those sorts of things that you do if you're not in an office together um but i think it's different for different teams and i i can't say one works or the other one works it's just very dependent on your business and who you are and what type of company you're creating in one of the um earlier 
uh, blogs you mentioned, I, I think it was like 2016. I think it was the same blog as I referenced earlier. Um, I haven't yet raised a significant amount of money. And then you go on to raise probably one of the largest seed rounds in Australian history. Why did you decide to go via the venture route after 10 years of being a bootstrap founder? Great question, Mason. <laughs> Isn't the AFI headline overnight <laughs> success? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> That's tug and cheek. <laughs> 2021 was an insane year for all of us involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we are in such a good place. Like, I feel so fortunate and grateful to be backed by Blackbird and all the support that we had from our investors in 2021 when we raised our seat round. I think the the round gives, as a founder, it gives you the fuel in the tank to execute. It gives you the flexibility to learn and grow a team and try some really big, bold things and moves that you want to make that you can't do when you're bootstrapped. And I remember building, you know, coming off the back of VOP and built, wanting to build a multi-merchant checkout and wanting to index all these products and wanting to do something that hadn't been done before. And I, it's so clear to me what the future of commerce can look like um, when you have the ability to be able to do that. And mm. in a way, you need venture money to do that and take on that risk and try something that hasn't been done before. And so I think we're, we were in and still are in a really good place and we're very, very lucky to be here and be able to do something like this. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> um, and, well, I would love to learn about um, the... It's like not eating and then suddenly getting a buffet. Uh, like, what was the psychology switch like? And did you need to go through a transition on uh, how you decided to set constraints and like stay true to a lot of the values and principles that you were talking about. Um, yeah, there's only a few people that have raised 10 million to seed. So I'm just curious how that affected um, your decision making. It's definitely a mindset shift. Yeah. Um, I think I have always been someone who is does not like to waste money I cannot I, I it's why I also help m merchants mm. it's seeing them waste money on things that don't need to be spent on um, but you know there's also a time and place where you need to like throw resources at something to get it done mm. so I think it's a fine balance of like how do you manage your resources that you have now and be willing to try things that you haven't been done uh, that you haven't been able to do before with by having re uh, funding and resources. Um, so I would still say that I'm very much have the bootstrap mindset in terms of don't waste money, like be smart about where you put it. But it is also allowed me to hire some incredible people on the team to do things that we wouldn't have been done been able to do before. And how big is the team now? We are quite small. So we made some changes earlier this year and reduced the team down to be really, really small and nimble for that exact purpose of being able to build out Swirl, move as fast as possible and learn as much as possible and be able to iterate without having to have multiple, you know, management in place. Yeah. Or just um, less time or zones. Or structures <laughs> or less time zones. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been really valuable for us to have a small team. Yeah. What was that? process like of reducing the headcount it's never ideal yeah um i loved and still love all the people that i've worked with over the last two years since starting carded um and it's hard to go through that change but i think also it's important there's you know as 2021 was a wild time a lot of people, investors, expected one to scale and build quickly. And then it was quite clear. I remember it was early to me and I said to uh, the partner who I work with, Michael Tolo, I was like, next year's not going to be the same. I don't know if he remembers this, but I remember it so clearly. Next year is not going to be the same. And for me, that meant there's not going to be lots of money. Yeah. 
we are not going to be able to hire this quickly. Not us, the whole ecosystem. It was so, it was a time in which um, it never been, it never been like this. And it was just like nearly too good to be true in a way. And so for me, it was like, okay, how do we start to do things um, and be more resourceful with what we're doing? And so when we had to let go of people or make changes, it was really like our strategy of what we needed to do had to change. Um, And so it wasn't right to keep people around for them too. Like I want them to grow and learn and be in a place where they're, you know, being able to learn new skills. And if you don't have the work that fits the team, then it work like on both sides, it's not fair to keep people on the team and it doesn't work for the business. Mm. So we let some of the team go and, you know, I was really did spend a lot of time trying to help people on the team find their next role. I was very lucky that everybody has found what they want to do and have moved on to other Blackbird companies. We're all in the portfolio. <laughs> Haven't gone very far from the nest. Um, yes. And how did you think about uh, going through that reduction in the right way? I know you've been like incredibly intentional about building an amazing team. And so I'd imagine um, you put the same sort of thought into uh, what was evidently a really hard time. I'm a very logical person, but also empathetic. So my logic side says that what does the company need? What makes sense? What roles are needed to get us to the next stage? And so you put that side on, that hat on, I should say. Um, I was in San Francisco and I had just arrived and I was meant to be there for three months and two weeks into my trip, I realized that we needed to change the team structure. We needed to, I'm really about like, once you make a decision, move fast, don't sit on it and wait around. So it was like, okay, we need to make the changes. Let's make the changes on the product strategy. Therefore we need these sorts of people. So I literally, the only time I wanted everybody across the multiple time zones to know at the same time. So I stayed up and had our all-hands meeting at, I think it was like 3 a.m. Pacific time. And then I did an all-hands and I said, I did mention at the beginning of this quarter that if if these assumptions didn't play out, then what we need to do is we need to make changes. Had all-hands and then I have one-on-ones with every single person. Yeah. Um, Whether they were staying or whether they were going, I had a call with every single person. Yeah. Um, it was hard. It was not easy. It's not nice to let people go. I really, as I said, love working with the people that I worked with. Everyone is so good at what they do. Yeah. But yes, my uh, I'm logic. I'm yeah. probably 51% logic, 49% emotional. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a perfect balance. Uh, and such is life. Uh to to be able to go through that and do it so decisively um, because thankfully you move fast because it means that these problems don't build and compound for longer than they need to yeah. and that's how relationships are destroyed and mm-hmm. and resentment builds mm-hmm. um, so kudos to you thank you for sharing uh, that story on people I want to sort of circle back to the vision but just like bring it into more real terms what is next for Carter over the next I don't know 12 months if I get you back on in a year's time uh, which I hope I can um, what will we be talking about what are the big bets great question well I think on the team side we really actually want to stay small and mighty like we want to be able to move fast we want to keep focused and we want to build out Swirl. We really do believe that if we help shoppers save the items, organize and compare the items that they actually want and be able to find the products uh, for the price or being able to be able to ship, get them shipped to them, that's what we want to focus on for the next year is get as many shoppers and that shopper personalization and linked offers available to them. Mm. So that's what we're doubling down on at the, at the moment. 
Epic. Um, so Mighty Team, Focus on Swirl. Uh, is there anything I can call you out on in a year? In a year? Tim Doyle style? Oh. <laughs> I can't wait to get him back on and hit him hard. That's a really good question. <laughs> the answer is make. no. <laughs> there is, but I'm not sharing. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, uh, I'd, be, I'd be in the same boat. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me at Wild Hearts. I really appreciate it. Um, so good to finally do it. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I am just going to shamelessly plug that we would love any of the Blackbird community to download and try out our app at shopswell.com and we welcome any feedback. Love it. We want to hear from users. Always be selling. Always. ABC, always be closing. <laughs> Thanks, Mason. <laughs> awesome sign-off. <laughs> <laughs>